0: Sketches by Bos, Section Fifty Three. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Reading by Brad Phillipone. Sketches by Bos by Charles Dickens, Section Fifty Three. Tales, Chapter Eight, The Great Winglebury Duel. The little town of Great Winglebury is exactly forty-two miles and three quarters from Hyde Park Corner. It has a long, straggling, quiet high street with a great black-and-white clock at a small red town-hall halfway up a market-place a cage an assembly-room a church a bridge a chapel a theatre a library an inn a pump and a post-office tradition tells of a little winglebury down some cross-road about two miles off and as a square mass of dirty paper supposed to have been originally intended for a letter with certain tremulous characters inscribed thereon in which a lively imagination might trace a remote resemblance to the word little was once stuck up to be owned in the sunny window of the great Winglebury post office from which it only disappeared when it fell to pieces with dust and extreme old age there would appear to be some foundation for the legend common belief is inclined to bestow the name upon a little hole at the end of a muddy lane about a couple of miles off colonized by one wheelwright four poppers and a beer-shop but even this authority slight as it is must be regarded with extreme suspicion inasmuch as the inhabitants of the hole aforesaid concur in opining that it never had any name at all from the earliest ages down to the present day the Winglebury arms in the centre of the high street opposite the small building with the big clock is the principal inn of great winglebury the commercial inn posting-house and excise office the blue house at every election and the judges house at every assizes. it is the headquarters of the gentlemen's whist club of winglebury blues so called in opposition to the gentlemen's whist club of winglebury buffs held at the other house a little further down and whenever a juggler or wax-works man or concert giver takes great winglebury in his circuit it is immediately placarded all over the town that mr so-and-so trusting to that liberal support which the inhabitants of great winglebury have long been so liberal in bestowing has at great expense engaged the elegant and commodious assembly-rooms attached to the winglebury arms the house is a large one with a red brick and stone front a pretty spacious hall ornamented with evergreen plants terminates in a prospective view of the bar and a glass case in which are displayed a choice variety of delicacies ready for dressing to catch the eye of a newcomer the moment he enters and excite his appetite to the highest possible pitch opposite doors lead to the coffee and commercial rooms and a great wide rambling staircase three stairs and a landing, four stairs and another landing, one step and another landing, half a dozen stairs and another landing, and so on, conducts to galleries of bedrooms and labyrinths of sitting-rooms, denominated private, where you may enjoy yourself as privately as you can in any place where some bewildered being walks into your room every five minutes, by mistake, and then walks out again, to open all the doors along the gallery until he finds his own such is the winglebury arms at this day and such was the winglebury arms some time since no matter when two or three minutes before the arrival of the london stage four horses with clothes on changed for a coach were standing quietly at the corner of the yard surrounded by a listless group of post-boys in shiny hats and smock-frocks engaged in discussing the merits of the cattle Half a dozen ragged boys were standing a little apart, listening with evident interest to the conversation of these worthies, and a few loungers were collected round the horse-trough, awaiting the arrival of the coach. The day was hot and sunny, the town in the zenith of its dullness, and with the exception of these few idlers not a living creature was to be seen. Suddenly the loud notes of a key bugle broke the monotonous stillness of the street, in came the coach rattling over the uneven paving with a noise startling enough to stop even the large-faced clock itself down got the outsides up went the windows in all directions out came the waiters up started the ostlers and the loungers and the post-boys and the ragged boys as if they were electrified unstrapping and unchaining and unbuckling and dragging willing horses out and forcing reluctant horses in and making a most exhilarating bustle lady inside here said the guard please to alight ma'am said the waiter private sitting-room interrogated the lady certainly ma'am responded the chambermaid nothing but these ere trunks ma'am inquired the guard nothing more replied the lady up got the outsides again and the guard and the coachman off came the class with a jerk all right was the cry and away they went the loungers lingered a minute or two in the road watching the coach until it had turned the corner and then loitered away one by one the street was clear again and the town by contrast quieter than ever lady in number twenty-five screamed the landlady thomas yes ma'am letter just been left for the gentleman in number nineteen boots at the lion left it no answer Letter for you, sir," said Thomas, depositing the letter on Number Nineteen's table. "For me," said Number Nineteen, turning from the window out of which he had been surveying the scene just described. "Yes, sir." Waiters always speak in hints and never utter complete sentences. "Yes, sir." Boots of the Lion, sir. Bar, sir. Missus said Number Nineteen, sir. Alexander Trot, Esquire, sir. Your card at the bar, sir. I think, sir. "'My name is Trot,' replied Number Nineteen, breaking the seal. "'You may go, waiter.' The waiter pulled down the window-blind and then pulled it up again, for a regular waiter must do something before he leaves the room. Adjusted the glasses on the sideboard, brushed the place that was not dusty, rubbed his hands very hard, walked stealthily to the door, and evaporated. There was, evidently, something in the contents of the letter of a nature, if not wholly unexpected, certainly extremely disagreeable. Mr. Alexander Trott laid it down and took it up again, and walked about the room on particular squares of the carpet, and even attempted, though unsuccessfully, to whistle an air. It wouldn't do. He threw himself into a chair and read the following epistle aloud. "'Blue Lion and Stomach Warmer, Great Winglebury, Wednesday morning. Sir, immediately on discovering your intentions, I left our counting-house and followed you. I know the purport of your journey.' that journey shall never be completed. I have no friend here just now on whose secretary I can rely. This shall be no obstacle to my revenge. Neither shall Emily Brown be exposed to the mercenary solicitations of a scoundrel odious in her eyes and contemptible in everybody else's. Nor will I tamely submit to the clandestine attacks of a base umbrella-maker. Sir... From Great Wingleberry Church, a footpath leads through Four Meadows to a retired spot known to the townspeople as Stuffin's Acre,' Mr. Trot shuddered. "'I shall be waiting there alone at twenty minutes before six o'clock tomorrow morning. Should I be disappointed in seeing you there, I will do myself the pleasure of calling with a horsewhip. Horace Hunter. P.S there is a gunsmith's in the high street and they won't sell gunpowder after dark you understand me p p s you had better not order your breakfast in the morning until you have met me it may be an unnecessary expense desperate minded villain i knew how it would be ejaculated the terrified trot i always told father that once start me on this expedition and hunter would pursue me like the wandering jew it's bad enough as it is to marry with the old people's commands and without the girl's consent but what will emily think of me if i go down there breathless with running away from this infernal salamander what shall i do what can i do if i go back to the city i'm disgraced for ever lose the girl and what's more lose the money too even if i did go on to the browns by the coach hunter would be after me in a post-chaise and if i go to this place this Stuffins acre another shudder i'm as good as dead i've seen him hit the man at the pall mall shooting gallery in the second buttonhole of the waistcoat five times out of every six and when he didn't hit him there he hit him in the head with this consolatory reminiscence mr alexander trot again ejaculated what shall i do long and weary were his reflections as, burying his face in his hand, he sat ruminating on the best course to be pursued. His mental direction post pointed to London. He thought of the Governor's anger and the loss of the fortune which the paternal Brown had promised the paternal trot his daughter should contribute to the coffers of his son. Then the words, to Browns, were legibly inscribed in the said direction post, but Horace Hunter's denunciation rung in his ears— Last of all, it bore in red letters the word TO STUFFIN'S ACRE, and then Mr. Alexander Trott decided on adopting a plan which he presently matured. First and foremost, he dispatched the underboots to the blue lion and stomach-warmer, with a gentlemanly note to Mr. Horace Hunter, intimating that he thirsted for his destruction, and would do himself the pleasure of slaughtering him next morning without fail he then wrote another letter and requested the attendance of the other boots for they kept a pair a modest knock at the room door was heard come in said mr trot a man thrust in a red head with one eye in it and being again desired to come in brought in the body and legs to which the head belonged and a fur cap which belonged to the head you are the upper boots i think inquired mr trot "'Yes, I'm the upper-boots,' replied a voice from inside a velveteen case with mother-of-pearl buttons. "'That is, I'm the boots as belongs to the house. The other man's my man, as goes errands and does odd jobs—top boots and half-boots, I calls us.' "'You're from London?' inquired Mr. Trott. "'Driv a cab once,' was the laconic reply. Well, "'Why don't you drive it now?' asked Mr. Trott. over the cab and drive over a woman.' replied the top-boots with brevity. Do you know the mayor's house? inquired Mr. Trot. Rather, replied the boots significantly, as if he had some good reason to remember it. Do you think you could manage to leave a letter there? interrogated Trot. Shouldn't wonder, responded Boots. But this letter, said Trot, holding a deformed note with a paralytic direction in one hand and five shillings in the other, this letter is anonymous. A what? interrupted the Boots. "'Anonymous! He's not to know who it comes from.' "'Oh, I see,' responded the regular, with a knowing wink, but without evincing the slightest disinclination to undertake the charge. "'I see. Bit of swing, eh?' And his one eye wandered round the room, as if in quest of a dark lantern and phosphorus box. "'But I say,' he continued, recalling the eye from its search, and bringing it to bear on Mr. Trott, "'I say, he's a lawyer, our mayor, and insured in the county.' "'If you've a spite again him, you'd better not burn his house down. Blessed if I don't think it would be the greatest favour you could do him!' And he chuckled inwardly. If Mr. Alexander Trott had been any other situation, his first act would have been to kick the man downstairs by deputy, or, in other words, to ring the bell and desire the landlord to take his boots off. He contented himself, however, with doubling the fee, and explaining that the letter merely related to a breach of the peace. The top-boots retired solemnly pledged to secrecy, and Mr. Alexander Trott sat down to a fried sole, maintenance cutlet, madeira, and sundries with greater composure than he had experienced since the receipt of Horace Hunter's letter of defiance. The lady who alighted from the London coach had no sooner been installed in number twenty-five, and made some alteration in her travelling-dress, And she indicted a note to joseph overton esquire solicitor and mayor of great winglebury requesting his immediate attendance on private business of paramount importance a summons which that worthy functionary lost no time in obeying for after sundry openings of his eyes divers ejaculations of bless me and other manifestations of surprise he took his broad-brimmed hat from its accustomed peg in his little front office and walked briskly down the high street to the Wingleberry Arms, through the hall, and up the staircase of which establishment he was ushered by the landlady and a crowd of officious waiters to the door of number twenty-five. "'Show the gentleman in,' said the stranger lady, in reply to the foremost waiter's announcement. The gentleman was shown in accordingly. The lady rose from the sofa. The mayor advanced a step from the door and there they both paused for a minute or two, looking at one another, as if by mutual consent. The mayor saw before him a buxom, richly-dressed female of about forty. The lady looked upon a sleek man, about ten years older, in drab shorts and continuations, black coat, neckcloth, and gloves. "'Miss Julia Manners!' exclaimed the mayor at length. "'You astonish me!' "'That's very unfavour of you, Overton,' replied Miss Julia, "'for I have known you long enough not to be surprised at anything you do, "'and you might extend equal courtesy to me. "'But to run away—actually run away with a young man,' remonstrated the Mayor. "'You wouldn't have me actually run away with an old one, I presume,' was the cool rejoinder. "'And then to ask me—me, of all people in the world— a man of my age and appearance mayor of the town to promote such a scheme pettishly ejaculated joseph overton throwing himself into an armchair and producing miss julia's letter from his pocket as if to corroborate the assertion that he had been asked now overton replied the lady i want your assistance in this matter and i must have it in the lifetime of that poor old dear mr cornbury who "'Who—who was to have married you and didn't because he died first, "'and who left you his property unencumbered with the addition of himself,' "'suggested the Mayor.' "'Well,' replied Miss Julia, reddening slightly, "'in the lifetime of the poor old dear, "'the property had the encumbrance of your management. "'And all I will say of that is that I only wonder "'if it didn't die of consumption instead of its master. "'You helped yourself then, help me now.' Mr. Joseph Overton was a man of the world, and an attorney, and as certain indistinct recollections of an odd thousand pounds or two, appropriated by mistake, passed across his mind, he hemmed deprecatingly, smiled blandly, and remained silent for a few seconds, and finally inquired, "'What do you wish me to do?' "'I'll tell you,' replied Miss Julia. "'I'll tell you in three words.' "'Dear Lord Peter—that's the young man, I supposed,' interrupted the Mayor. "'That's the young nobleman,' replied the lady, with great stress on the last word. "'Dear Lord Peter is considerably afraid of the resentment of his family, and we have therefore thought it better to make the match a stolen one. He left town to avoid suspicion on a visit to his friend, the Honourable Augustus Flare, whose seat as you know is about thirty miles from this accompanied only by his favourite tiger we arranged that i should come here alone in the london couch and that he leaving his tiger and cab behind him should come on and arrive here as soon as possible this afternoon very well observed joseph overton "'And then he can order the chaise, and you can go to Gretna Green together "'without requiring the presence or interference of a third party, can't you?' "'No,' replied Miss Julia. "'We have every reason to believe—dear Lord Peter, not being considered very prudent "'or sagacious by his friends, and they having discovered his attachment to me, "'that immediately on his absence being observed, pursuit will be made in this direction, "'to elude which, and to prevent our being traced, I wish it to be understood in this house— that dear Lord peter is slightly deranged though perfectly harmless and that I am unknown to him awaiting his arrival to convey him in a post-chaise to a private asylum at berwick say if i don't show myself much i dare say i can manage to pass for his mother the thought occurred to the mayor's mind that the lady might show herself a good deal without fear of detection seeing that she was about double the age of her intended husband he said nothing however and the lady proceeded With the whole of this arrangement, dear Lord Peter is acquainted, and all I want you to do is to make the delusion more complete by giving it the sanction of your influence in this place, and assigning this as a reason to the people of the house for my taking the young gentleman away. As it would not be consistent with the story that I should see him until after he has entered the chaise, I also wish to communicate with him and inform him that it is all going on well. "'Has he arrived?' inquired Overton. "'I don't know,' replied the lady. "'Then how am I to know?' inquired the mayor. "'Of course he will not give his own name at the bar.' "'I begged him, immediately on his arrival, to write you a note,' replied Miss Manners, "'and to prevent the possibility of our project being discovered through its means. "'I desired him to write anonymously, and in mysterious terms, to acquaint you with the number of his room.' "'Bless me!' exclaimed the mayor, rising from his seat and searching his pockets. "'Most extraordinary circumstance! He has arrived! Mysterious note left at my house in a most mysterious manner, just before yours. Didn't know what to make of it before, and certainly shouldn't have attended to it. Oh, here it is!' And Joseph Overton pulled out of an inner coat-pocket the identical letter penned by Alexander Trott. "'Is this his lordship's hand?' oh yes replied julia good punctual creature i have not seen it more than once or twice but i know he writes very badly and very large these dear wild young noblemen you know overton ay i see replied the mayor horses and dogs play and wine grooms actresses and cigars the stable the green room the saloon and the tavern and the legislative assembly at last here's what he said pursued the mayor "Sir." A young gentleman in number 19 at the Wingleberry Arms is bent on committing a rash act tomorrow morning at an early hour. That's good. He means marrying. If you have any regard for the peace of this town, or the preservation of one, it may be two human lives. What the deuce does he mean by that?' "'That he's so anxious for the ceremony he will expire if it's put off, and that I may possibly do the same,' replied the lady, with great complacency. "'Oh, I see. Not much fear of that. Well,' Two human lives. You will cause him to be removed to-night. He wants to start at once. "'Fear not to do this on your responsibility, for to-morrow the absolute necessity of the proceeding will be but too apparent. Remember, number nineteen, the name is Trot. No delay, for life and death depend on your promptitude.' "'Passionate language, certainly. Shall I see him?' "'Do,' replied Miss Julia.' and entreat him to act his part well. I am half afraid of him. Tell him to be cautious. I will, said the Mayor. Settle all the arrangements. I will, said the Mayor again. And say I think the chaise had better be ordered for one o'clock. Very well, said the Mayor once more. And ruminating on the absurdity of the situation in which fate and old acquaintance had placed him, he desired a waiter to herald his approach to the temporary representative of number nineteen. The announcement, "'Gentlemen to speak with you, sir,' induced Mr. Trot to pause half-way in the glass of port, the contents of which he was in the act of imbibing at the moment, to rise from his chair, and retreat a few paces towards the window, as if to secure a retreat, in the event of the visitor assuming the form and appearance of Horace Hunter. One glance at Joseph Overton, however, quieted his apprehensions. He courteously motioned the stranger to a seat. The waiter, after a little jingling with his decanter and glasses, consented to leave the room, and Joseph Overton, placing the broad-brimmed hat on the chair next him, and bending his body gently forward, opened the business by saying, in a very low and cautious tone, "'My lord,' eh?' said Mr. Alexander Trott, in a loud key, with the vacant and mystified stare of a chilly somnambulist. "'Hush, hush,' said the cautious attorney. "'To be sure, quite right. No titles here. My name is Overton, sir.' "'Overton. Yes, the mayor of this place. You sent me a letter with anonymous information this afternoon.' I, sir,' exclaimed Trot, with ill-dissembled surprise, for, coward as he was, he would willingly have repudiated the authorship of the letter in question. "'Aye, sir.' "'Yes, you, sir. Did you not?' responded Overton annoyed with what he supposed to be an extreme degree of unnecessary suspicion either this letter is yours or it is not if it be we can converse securely upon the subject at once if it be not of course i have no more to say stay stay said trot it is mine i did write it what could i do sir i had no friend here to be sure to be sure said the mayor encouragingly you could not have managed it better well sir It will be necessary for you to leave here to-night in a post-chaise and four, and the harder the boys drive the better. You are not safe from pursuit. Bless me! exclaimed Trot, in an agony of apprehension. Can such things happen in a country like this? Such unrelenting and cold-blooded hostility? He wiped off the concentrated essence of cowardice that was oozing fast down his forehead, and looked aghast at Joseph Overton. "'It certainly is a very hard case,' replied the mayor, with a smile, "'that in a free country people can't marry whom they like, "'without being hunted down as if they were criminals. "'However, in the present instance, the lady is willing, you know, "'and that's the main point, after all.' "'Lady willing,' repeated Trot mechanically. "'How do you know the lady's willing?' "'Come, that's a good one,' said the mayor, "'benevolently tapping Mr. Trot on the arm with his broad-brimmed hat. "'I have known her well for a long time,' and if anybody could entertain the remotest doubt on the subject i assure you i have none nor need you have dear me said trot ruminating this is very extraordinary well lord peter said the mayor rising lord peter repeated mr trot oh i I forgot Uh, mr trot then trot uh, very good (laughs) ha ha well sir the chaise shall be ready at half-past twelve "'And what is to become of me until then?' inquired Mr. Trott anxiously. "'Wouldn't it save appearances, if I were placed under some restraint?' "'Ah,' replied Overton, "'a very good thought. Capital idea, indeed. "'I'll send somebody up directly. "'And if you make a little resistance when we put you in the chaise, "'it wouldn't be amiss. "'Look as if you didn't want to be taken away, you know.' "'To be sure,' said Trott, "'to be sure.' "'Well, my lord,' said Overton, in a low tone, "'until then,' i wish your oh lordship a good evening L- lordship ejaculated trot again falling back a step or two and gazing in unutterable wonder on the countenance of the mayor Ha! <laughs> ha! i see my lord practising the madman very good indeed very vacant look capital my lord capital good evening mr trot <laughs> "'That mayor's decidedly drunk,' soliloquized Mr. Trot, throwing himself back in his chair in an attitude of reflection. "'He's a much cleverer fellow than I thought him, that young nobleman. He carries it off uncommonly well,' thought Oberton, as he went his way to the bar there to complete his arrangements. This was soon done. Every word of the story was implicitly believed— and the one-eyed boots was immediately instructed to repair to number nineteen to act as custodian of the person of the supposed lunatic until half-past twelve o'clock in pursuance of this direction that somewhat eccentric gentleman armed himself with a walking-stick of gigantic dimensions and repaired with his usual equanimity of manner to mr trott's apartment which he entered without any ceremony and mounted guard in by quietly depositing himself on a chair near the door, where he proceeded to beguile the time by whistling a popular air with great apparent satisfaction. "'What do you want here, you scoundrel?' exclaimed Mr. Alexander Trot with a proper appearance of indignation at his detention. The boots beat time with his head, as he looked gently round at Mr. Trott with a smile of pity, and whistled an adagio movement do you attend in this room by mr overton's desire inquired trot rather astonished at the man's demeanour keep yourself to yourself young feller," calmly responded the boots and don't say nothing to nobody and he whistled again now mind ejaculated mr trot anxious to keep up the farce of wishing with great earnestness to fight a duel if they'd let him i protest against being kept here i deny that i have any intention of fighting with anybody "'but as it's useless contending with superior numbers, I shall sit quietly down.' "'You'd better,' observed the placid Boots, shaking the large stick expressively. "'Under protest, however,' added Alexander Trott, seating himself with indignation in his face, but great content in his heart. "'Under protest.' "'Oh, certainly,' responded the Boots. "'Anything you please. "'If you're happy, I'm transported. "'Only don't talk too much, it'll make you worse.' "'Make me worse!' exclaimed Trot, in unfeigned astonishment, the man's drunk. "'You'd better be quiet, young fellow,' remarked the Boots, going through a threatening piece of pantomime with the stick. "'Or mad?' Mr. Trot, rather alarmed. "'Leave the room, sir, and tell them to send somebody else.' "'Won't do,' replied the Boots. "'Leave the room!' shouted Trot, ringing the bell violently, for he began to be alarmed on a new score. "'Leave that here, bell alone, you wretched lunatic,' said the Boots, suddenly forcing the unfortunate trot back into his chair and brandishing the stick aloft. "'Be quiet, you miserable object, and don't let everybody know there's a madman in the house.' "'He is a madman. He is a madman!' exclaimed the terrified Mr. Trot, gazing on the one eye of the red-headed Boots with a look of abject horror. "'Madman!' replied the Boots. "'Damn me, I think he is a madman with a vengeance. Listen to me, you unfortunate I would you?' a slight tap on the head with the large stick as Mr. Trott made another move towards the bell-handle. "'I caught you there, did I?' "'Spare my life!' exclaimed Trot, raising his hands imploringly. "'I don't want your life,' replied the Boots, disdainfully. "'Though I think it'd be charity if somebody took it.' "'No, it wouldn't,' interrupted poor Mr. Trott, hurriedly. "'No, no, it wouldn't. I, I'd rather keep it.' "'Oh, very well,' said the Boots. "'That's a mere matter of taste, every one to his liking.' "'Hosever, all I've got to say is this here. "'You sit quietly down in that chair, and I'll set hop I sit you here, "'and if you keep quiet and don't stir, I won't damage you. "'But if you move hand or foot till half-past twelve o'clock, "'I shall alter the expression if you countenance counted so completely "'that the next time you look in the glass, you'll ask whether you've gone out to of town, "'and then you're likely to come back again, so sit down.' "'I will, I will,' responded the victim of mistakes, and down sat Mr. Trot, and down sat the boots, too, exactly opposite him, with the stick ready for immediate action in case of emergency. Long and dreary were the hours that followed. The bell of great Wingleberry Church had just struck ten, and two hours and a half would probably elapse before succor arrived.' For half an hour the noise occasioned by shutting up the shops in the street beneath betokened something like life in the town, and rendered Mr. Trot's situation a little less insupportable. But when even these ceased, and nothing else was heard beyond the occasional rattling of a post-chaise as it drove up the yard to change horses, and then drove away again, or the clattering of horses hoofs in the stables behind it became almost unbearable. The boots occasionally moved an inch or two to knock superfluous bits of wax off the candles, which were burning low, but instantaneously resumed his former position, and as he remembered to have heard somewhere or other that the human eye had an unfailing effect in controlling mad people, he kept his solitary organ of vision constantly fixed on Mr. Alexander Trot. That unfortunate individual stared at his companion in his turn, until his features grew more and more indistinct his hair gradually less red and the room more misty and obscure mr alexander trot fell into a sound sleep from which he was awakened by a rumbling in the street and a cry of chaise and full for number twenty-five a bustle on the stairs succeeded The room door was hastily thrown open, and Mr. Joseph Overton entered, followed by four stout waiters, and Mrs. Williamson, the stout landlady of the Wingleberry Arms. "'Mr. Overton!' exclaimed Mr. Alexander Trott, jumping up in a frenzy. "'Look at this man, sir. Consider the situation in which I've been placed for three hours past. This person you sent to guard me was a madman, a madman, a raging, ravaging, furious madman!' bravo whispered mr overton poor dear said the compassionate mrs williamson mad people always thinks other people's mad poor dear ejaculated mr alexander Trott. what the devil do you mean by poor dear are you the landlady of this house yes yes replied the stout old lady don't exert yourself there's a dear consider your health now do exert myself shouted mr alexander trot it's a mercy man that i have any breath to exert myself with "'I might have been assassinated three hours ago by that one-eyed monster with the oakum head. "'How dare you have a madman, ma'am, how dare you have a madman to assault and terrify the visitors to your house!' "'I'll never have another,' said Mrs. Williamson, casting a look of reproach at the mayor. "'Capital, capital!' whispered Oberton again, as he enveloped Mr. Alexander Trott in a thick travelling-cloak capital sir exclaimed trot aloud it's horrible the very recollection makes me shudder i'd rather fight four duels in three hours if i surveyed the first three than i'd sit for that time face to face with a madman keep it up my lord as you go downstairs whispered oberton your bill is paid and your portmanteau in the chaise and then he added aloud now waiters the gentleman's ready at this signal the waiters crowded round mr alexander trot one took one arm another the other a third walked before with a candle the fourth behind with another candle the boots and mrs williamson brought up the rear and downstairs they went mr alexander Trott expressing alternately at the very top of his voice either his feigned reluctance to go or his unfeigned indignation at being shut up with a madman mr oberton was waiting at the chaise door the boys were ready mounted and a few ostlers and stable nondescripts were standing round to witness the departure of the mad gentleman. Mr. Alexander Trott's foot was on the step. When he observed, which the dim light had prevented his doing before, a figure seated in the chaise, closely muffled up in a cloak like his own. "'Who's that?' he inquired of Overton in a whisper. "'Hush, hush,' replied the mayor. "'The other party, of course.' the other party exclaimed trot with an effort to retreat yes yes you'll soon find that out before you go far i should think but make a noise you'll excite suspicion if you whisper to me so much i won't go in this chaise shouted mr alexander trot all his original fears recurring with tenfold violence i shall be assassinated i shall be bravo bravo whispered overton i'll push you in but i won't go exclaimed mr trot help here help "'They're carrying me away against my will. "'This is a plot to murder me.' "'Poor dear!' said Mrs. Williamson again. "'Now, boys, put em along,' cried the Mayor, "'pushing Trot in and slamming the door. "'Off with you as quick as you can, "'and stop for nothing till you come to the next stage. "'All right.' "'Horses are paid,' screamed Mrs. Williamson, "'and away went the chaise at the rate of fourteen miles an hour, "'with Mr. Alexander Trot and Miss Julia Manners "'carefully shut up on the inside.' Mr. Alexander Trott remained coiled up in one corner of the chaise, and his mysterious companion in the other, for the first two or three miles, Mr. Trott edging more and more into his corner, as he felt his companion gradually edging more and more from hers, and vainly endeavouring in the darkness to catch a glimpse of the furious face of the supposed Horace Hunter. "'We may speak now,' said his fellow-traveller at length. "'The post-boys can neither see nor hear us.' "'That's not Hunter's voice,' thought Alexander, astonished. "'Dear Lord Peter,' said Miss Julia, most willingly, putting her arm on Mr. Trot's shoulder. "'Dear Lord Peter! Not a word!' "'Why, it's a woman!' exclaimed Mr. Trott, in a low tone of excessive wonder. "'Ah! Whose voice is that?' said Julia. "'Tis not Lord Peter's.' "'No, it's mine,' replied Mr. Trot. "'Yours?' ejaculated Miss Julia Manners.' strange man gracious heaven how came you here whoever you are you might have known that i came against my will ma'am replied alexander for i made noise enough when i got in do you come from lord peter inquired miss manners confound lord peter replied trot pettishly i don't know any lord peter i never heard of him before to-night when i've been lord petered by one and lord petered by another till i verily believe i'm mad or dreaming "'Whither are we going?' inquired the lady tragically. "'How should I know, ma'am?' replied Trot, with singular coolness, for the events of the evening had completely hardened him. "'Stop! stop!' cried the lady, letting down the front glasses of the chaise. "'Stay, my dear ma'am,' said Mr. Trot, pulling the glasses up again with one hand and gently squeezing Miss Julia's waist with the other. "'There is some mistake here. "'Give me till the end of this stage to explain my share of it. "'We must go far. "'You cannot be set down here alone at this hour of the night.' the lady consented the mistake was mutually explained mr trot was a young man had highly promising whiskers an undeniable tailor and an insinuating address he wanted nothing but valour and who wants that with three thousand a year the lady had this and more she wanted a young husband and the only course open to mr Trott to retrieve his disgrace was a rich wife so they came to the conclusion that it would be a pity to have all this trouble and expense for nothing, and that as they were so far on the road already, they had better go to Gretna Green and marry each other, and they did so. And the very next preceding entry in the blacksmith's book was an entry of the marriage of Emily Brown with Horace Hunter. Mr. Hunter took his wife home and begged pardon and was pardoned, and Mr. Trott took his wife home and begged pardon too and was pardoned also. And Lord Peter who had been detained beyond his time by drinking champagne and riding a steeplechase went back to the honourable augustus flares and drank more champagne and rode another steeplechase and was thrown and killed and horace hunter took great credit to himself for practising on the cowardice of alexander trot and all these circumstances were discovered in time and carefully noted down and if you ever stop a week at the wingleberry arms they will give you just this account of the great Winglebury duel. End of Section 53